So I am not trained as a teacher, per se, but I am aware that there are different learning styles, right? Everyone has different ways that they prefer to learn. I was looking online this week, and some say there are seven different learning styles. Others say, no, there's just four, and, and there are probably other combinations. But the four kind of basic ones that most of us are familiar with are some people are visual learners, right? Who, who would identify themselves as a very visual? You see it on the screen, or you uh, maybe on a, the board, or a page, or something, uh, or you see it in front of you. You learn that way. Other people are very auditory learners. They hear something and they learn through hearing. Who learns kind of that way? Okay, well, we're in trouble because I got to use different methods, right? Well, the good news is if you bring your Bible or your phone, you're, if you're a visual learner, you're at least able to read it and see it in front of you. And for those four that are auditory learners, you're able to hear it. Now, some people do better with like reading or writing it. You know, there's kind of that combination. You, you, write, you write notes maybe during the sermon or in school. You take good notes or you write out your thoughts and it helps you to learn that way. Anyone kind of identify with that learning style? Okay. And then there's the kinesthetic, the people who learn by moving and actually trying it out for those things that are possible. Who, who learns more that way? Okay. Any other learning styles that you, I didn't mention that you identify with? Okay. Through music, yeah. So the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. Music is so important. Uh, so we realize all of us learn differently. There are different things and different ways that we learn. And as you look through the scriptures, I think you'll find that God uses all of those ways to teach us and to teach his people. Today we're talking about the sanctuary. Because God used the sanctuary in a very visual manner, in a very kinesthetic manner, uh, and there was also auditory things, and as we read about it, we're, we're getting that involved also. The sanctuary has so much to teach us about God. Well, we start with a very basic question, what is the sanctuary? As we refer to it as Christians, as Adventists, what's the sanctuary? Who can give me just a simple definition for the sanctuary? A tent, yeah, okay. In the very beginning, it was just a tent. Okay, what else? Dwelling place for God. Dwelling place for God. Exodus 25, verse 8. Let them build me a sanctuary that I might dwell among. I want to live with them. Now, wasn't God with them already, even before the sanctuary? So, so why did he need a tent? I think probably we needed a tent. So there needed to be a physical place for us to see God's presence. Of course, they didn't actually see um, what the high priest got to see once a year because that was in the most holy place, which was all covered up. But they got to see the visible, physical representation of God living with them. So we're talking about the sanctuary today, but before we get to what Jesus had to say about the sanctuary, just maybe a, a brief reminder of what the sanctuary was like. Who went to the Messiah's mansion last summer and saw that? Wasn't that awesome? That was so cool to see the, the exact scale of most of the things, to learn more about what was going on there. Here 
is another one. This isn't Messiah's mansion, but uh, I think this may actually be in the Sinai Peninsula, uh, a, a sanctuary that is set up. But the first thing people would, would come to as they would enter the sanctuary would be the, the gate, right? The, the, the flaps that were open here at the entrance for people to enter into. And then David says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. And then, of course, they would get to the altar where their sacrifice, where the lamb that died because of their sin was burned, or at least most of it. And following that, what was the, that thing that's right there? What was that thing called? The laver. It, that's another term for the water bowl. And it was a place where the priests would engage in cleansing. It was a place where they could wash their hands off, a place where their feet could be cleansed. It wasn't a whole bathtub. They didn't hop in it, but they got to cleanse themselves. When then when they'd go into the, to the, the tent itself, there were two compartments, and of course, uh, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't visible. There, there was a, a veil that separated this during the regular um, times, but there were three pieces of furniture in the holy place. And with or without looking, what were those three things in the holy place? Okay, the candlesticks were there. There was the altar of incense, and then there was the table of showbread, whatever that means, right? We could talk about that another time. So there were those three pieces of furniture, and of course, in the most holy place, which was only entered into one time per year, was that Ark of the Covenant where God's presence, the Shekinah glory, dwelled, where God, in a visible, physical, in as possible as, as the Spirit can be physically present, God dwelled there. Interestingly enough, later on in Israel's history, after they rebelled again and again and again from God, God's presence no longer dwelled there. They, they no longer could see that glowing light. In fact, later on, when the ark was hidden, there wasn't even an ark there. The, priest, the high priest would come in and stand there in front of a void. And uh, it was a symbol of just their choices and their separation from God, but they still continued the routine. But there's so much we could say about the sanctuary. We're not going to cover it all. There have been volumes written on it, but I want to focus specifically about Jesus and the sanctuary and what Jesus taught about the sanctuary. Now, Jesus didn't come to lay out a complete theology of every single subject. He came to live it out and to be here with us. But I want you to grab your Bibles or your phones or your iPads. Grab a Bible because we want to see Jesus and the sanctuary from the Gospels with our own eyes. John chapter 1. We're going to start there. As you start to think about the Bible and the Gospels in terms of sanctuary language, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt because you find all of these symbols, all of these themes that are scattered in broad daylight in the Gospels and in Revelation and in the rest of the Bible. You know, just think about this. In Revelation, it starts off in the first couple of chapters and Jesus is walking. And where is he walking? There are some things. There's candlesticks where Jesus is walking in Revelation. 
And then later on, it says that the Ark of the Covenant was seen in heaven. As you study Revelation, you realize, oh, sanctuary is scattered throughout. And it helps us to better understand Revelation. But we're in the Gospels today. John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John, the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It couldn't be more plain than that. What lambs were they referring to? Well, the lambs that they had been slaying every single day for the past thousands, hundreds of years. The lambs that would take away their sin. And John clearly understands it and he says, he's the one. All of those sacrifices were pointing to that guy right there. The culmination of our nation's spiritual history is focused right there in that guy. It wasn't that the Lamb itself had the power, but the Lamb pointed forward to the Lamb of God that would have the power. So from the very beginning, the sanctuary is all about Jesus. It's all about what he can do for us. In fact, in John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Now, he was talking about the door to the sheep pen there, but he's also the way that we even have access to the sanctuary. Remember, there are doors in the front of the sanctuary. In fact, the only reason what we want to go to this sanctuary is because of Jesus himself. Check it out. John chapter 12. John 12, verse 32. John 12 and verse 32. Jesus says there, But I, if I be lifted up, well, when I am lifted up from the earth, and then what's the response? What will happen as a result? I will draw all people to myself. So the only reason we have any desire for God is because Jesus has been lifted up and he is drawing us. God is drawing us. The Holy Spirit is drawing us to him. We wouldn't feel bad for our sin if it weren't for Jesus. In the Old Testament, same was true. If it weren't for the Holy Spirit, People wouldn't feel bad about their sin. They wouldn't feel that guilt and feel the need to confess their sin and to bring a sacrifice, a lamb or whatever, to the sanctuary. So from the very beginning, we're seeing it's all about Jesus. Salvation is all about Jesus. He's the one who initiates it, drawing us. He's the one that we enter through. We have access to forgiveness. And he's the one who died to cleanse us and to empower us. So then we move on into the sanctuary. After the altar of sacrifice was the, was the what? The laver, that, the washing station. What did Jesus say to the woman in John chapter 4? She came there with a bucket and he was offering her something. What was he offering her? Living water. 
Jesus didn't say, I am the laver. He didn't say that. But he said, I have, in fact, he said the next better thing. I am the source of all water, of living water. So when we think about the sanctuary and the priests going there for cleansing, Jesus is the source of all cleansing. He's the source of all life, of all living water. You can't escape it. And so when we read those passages where in, in Ezekiel and other places where it says, I will sprinkle water on you and you will be clean, the only reason that's possible is because Jesus is the source of that cleansing. And if it weren't for his pure sacrifice, there would be no cleansing for us. And then we move on past the laver into the holy place. And as we look on our right, we see something there. It's a table and it has two stacks of bread. Six here, six there. A table of showbread. Go to John chapter 6, verse 33. John 6, verse 33. Remember I said earlier we could almost do this whole series we've been doing from the Gospel of John, right? Today, most of our verses are from John, and then we'll hop to Hebrews also. John 6, verse 33. Jesus made seven I am statements in the Gospels, and this is one of them. What did he say there? Right. So in this, this verse, there are other verses. Um, I got ahead of myself or I got confused a little bit. But this verse, Jesus clearly says, For the bread of God is he who comes down and gives life to the world. And then verse 35. The, Thus Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we enter in the sanctuary, we look to our right, we see bread. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you need sustenance for your soul, I'm it. What did he say to his disciples on that last supper? He, he had the bread and as he broke it, what did he say? He said, this is my body. That's right. Jesus identified himself with the bread. So the bread that they had been making and baking once a week, for all those years, Jesus is saying, that bread is me. I'm the one who will give you strength. He also compared the Bible to bread. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live off of God's word. Jesus is the bread of life. Now what about the lampstand? Go to John chapter 9. While you're in John, John 9, verse 5. Lampstand had seven branches. Seven is a, is a good number in the Bible. John 9, verse 5. Here's another I am statement. While I am in the world, I am the what? The light of the world. In the sanctuary, every element is pointing to Jesus, is fulfilled in Jesus. He is the light of the world. The world has light and hope only because of Jesus. Now, Jesus also said, you are the light of the world. 
We're only able to be light because we receive the light and then we're able to share the light. Amen? So Jesus is the bread of life. He's the light. He's the sacrifice. He's the door. He's, he's the, the living water. He's the one that draws us. Are you seeing a pattern here? <laughs> Salvation from beginning to end is all about Jesus. There was a guy, I was helping with some meetings down in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was a greeter. David Ashwick was preaching when he was a young preacher. His appendix ruptured during the series, or he had appendicitis. He walked off the stage and went to the hospital and had it immediately removed. But anyways, I was a greeter for those meetings. And every night, a guy would walk in, and he would shake my hand, and he would say, Ain't nobody but Jesus. Ain't nobody but Jesus. And I didn't really know what he meant. But the more I live and the more I study, the more I think it's so true. He's the only one that truly matters. <laughs> Salvation from beginning to end is all about what he has done, what he's doing, and what he will do. Now, what about the, land, what about the incense? I will not show you a verse that says, I am the altar of incense. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that. It would be convenient for the sermon, but he didn't say that. But he did something better than that. Because in Hebrews 7, and we'll get to that in a moment, he is the one who was always interceding for us. And the altar of incense represented prayer. The prayers continually going up before God. And if it wasn't for Jesus and his sacrifice, when we prayed, absolutely nothing would happen. Right? Because number one, we wouldn't be alive, possibly. We wouldn't have any desire to pray, and we would have no hope for salvation. So our prayer is only meaningful because of what Jesus has done for us, the sacrifice that he made for us, always interceding. Now we're going to go to Hebrews. We've run out of John texts for the moment. We're going to go to the book of Hebrews, a sanctuary book, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is just kind of towards the end of your Bible where the books start getting really skinny. Hebrews chapter 10. I was doing a Bible study with a lady one time. We were in 1 Peter, and we were going to go to 2 Peter. And she didn't know where it was. And I, I just said, that's all right. You know, it's just the next book right after 1 Peter is 2 Peter. And she got there, and, and it was good. By the way, we're talking about learning styles. If you don't know the books of the Bible in order, there are some tremendous songs that you can find on YouTube or that that's someone from CVCA, a little fourth grader, can probably teach you that will help you know your books of the Bible in order and you'll be able to flip through the pages so much faster. It's like when you learn your ABCs. Did anyone learn the ABCs without a song? You learned it without a song? Oh, wow. You don't remember so okay. Who learned ABCs by a song? Okay, songs help you learn. And so if you want to learn the books of the Bible, ask me and I'll share you a YouTube link that will help you. Uh, or you can Google it yourself. And if you want to learn scripture, man, there are some good scripture songs on the internet or on CDs that you can buy or cassette tapes. And, oh, they exist. 
I have a, I have a cassette tape with, it's blue. I don't have anything to play. No, I do. I have a portable thing that I can still play it with. The point is, different people learn differently. And music is a powerful way to learn, right? Powerful way. The sanctuary is a very visual thing that's helping us. And, and for the people who got to experience it, it was a kinesthetic thing. But now in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Check this out. We're moving our way through the sanctuary and we're seeing every part of it has to do with Jesus. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, his flesh. So as we get to enter into the most holy place, we go through the curtain, and what's the curtain represent? Jesus and his flesh. You see, without Jesus and his sacrifice, we're stuck. We can't get to God. And we have to have somebody else go to God for us, right? But because of Christ, that curtain, what happened to the curtain, the literal physical curtain in the temple when Christ was crucified? It was torn from top to bottom. It was a tall curtain. Tall curtain, thick curtain, ripped. And all of a sudden, anybody who was at the right angle could look in and see the most holy place. We have been given tremendous access. No more locked doors, no more gates stopping our way. We have access, and it's because of Jesus who's the curtain. We're going to have to do a series in the book of Hebrews sometime. It's just filled with so many good things. Finally, as we enter into the most holy place, boy, there's just so much there that we could talk about. But we get to experience the presence of God. There's those Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant, a law that we of ourselves can't keep. But praise God, what's between the Ten Commandments, and God, the mercy seat. It's God's mercy, His grace, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, that when He looks at our record, He sees good things, the good things that Jesus did, instead of the bad things that we did. You know, something interesting happens in the Gospels and in the Bible when Jesus stands up. Because in that most holy place, the high priest would stand before God, representing the people. He was the intercessor. He was there standing before God. Something interesting happens when Jesus stands up. If you read the Gospels and you read the Bible, anytime he stands, something good's going to happen. Right? So, so you think about different stories like, like uh, John chapter 8, verse 10. There was a woman caught in adultery. She's accused rightly so, but by some priests that were wanting to, to do some bad things, catch Jesus. And, and eventually Jesus kneels down and he starts writing in the sand. Writing probably their sins. And then when he stands up, he's in judgment mode. And he says, whoever of you hasn't sinned, right? 
can cast the first stone. And when he stood up, they all left. They dropped their stones and they walked out. When Jesus stands, good things happen, and it usually is because he is starting a work of judgment. You think about the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, there's Stephen, first Christian martyr. He preaches this awesome sermon and totally condemns the whole religious system and the people. And as he is about to be stoned, he's hauled out of the city. As he's about to die, he looks up into heaven, he sees a vision, and if you look there in Acts chapter 7, verse 50, something or other, you'll notice what posture is Jesus in. It says, he, I see the Son of Man, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus was seated upon his throne, and when this started to happen, Jesus says, you can't do that. I'm standing up. And he started a work of judgment. And from that point, we identify that the gospel began to go to everybody directly. And judgment was called upon those who had rejected again and again the message of Christ. What about Daniel chapter 12? Daniel 12 falls Daniel 11, where all those crazy things happen that we're, we're still trying to figure out. What's this exactly talking about? But in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, Michael, which is another name for Jesus, shall stand up. And then in the very next verse, it talks about the things that will happen when he returns. The dead coming up out of their graves. At a certain point in earth's history, Jesus stands up. Enough is enough. It's time to bring this all to a close. So Jesus is our great high priest, Hebrews says. And so when he would stand, when the priest would stand, he was representing Jesus who is standing on our behalf. Standing up for us. The devil rightly can accuse us of all sorts of horrible things because they're true. But we've got somebody who's standing for us in heaven. Look at Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to look at just a few more verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 through 16. Some of my favorite verses. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence or with boldness that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our every time of need. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted, and he's there to help us. We have access. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Now Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, we referenced this earlier, verse 23 and 20 through 25. Now, there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely, or in other translations, to the uttermost. Those who come... Th- to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. It doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. Jesus is able to save you 
You haven't fallen so far that his arm can't reach you. Doesn't it say in the Old Testament, the arm of the Lord is not shortened so that he is not able to save. His ear isn't like deaf so that he can't hear us. No matter what you've done, Jesus and his blood can cleanse and cover and save you and present you spotless before the throne. And it says he always lives to intercede. The sanctuary teaches us that we have a great high priest who not only died for us, not only has provided means for us to grow and be forgiven, but he's now currently standing on our behalf. Let's look at one more verse. Hebrews 8, verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, but not by man. Now verse 5. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy of the shadow of of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned about what to, uh, to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern that I show you on the mountain. Where is the sanctuary that Jesus is serving us? In heaven. in heaven. It's the true sanctuary, the true tabernacle. And one day when we get to heaven, we're going to see exactly what that looks like. It's going to be much better than the copies that God gave for us here. But as we study the copy that we were given, we see from A to Z, from beginning to end, salvation is all about what Jesus has done for us. So what's our part? You want to know what our part is from looking at the sanctuary? Our part is we committed the sin that killed Jesus. That's our contribution to salvation. We made it necessary. And then because of Jesus being lifted up, we don't resist. And we say, okay, I'll accept. And we begin our walk to the gates, to the altar, to the laver, and onward and onward. By the way, when you accept Christ, uh, the next thing is water, baptism. Some of you have made that decision recently to be baptized. Some of you, God will call to make that decision for baptism or for rebaptism. If that's your desire, let me know. I'm not going to have a card for you today. I'm not going to call you forward today. But if you've accepted Jesus but you haven't been baptized, that's probably something to start thinking about. Uh, talk to me about it. I want to go on this journey with you together. From the very beginning, Jesus draws us, He calls us, He saves us. So what do we do with this? Got to wrap it up. We're going to close with a song here in just a moment. I've already asked some people to be my helpers for the song. You know who you are, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> if you came to 10 days of prayer, or if you go to prayer meeting, you're my helper today. But what do we do with this knowledge? Number one, we say, thank you so much, Jesus. I accept your gift. And we realize that it's not upon us, it's upon Him. We're not saved by the good that we do. We're saved by the good that Jesus has done. And He wants to do good through us, but not to save us, 
but just to give us a better life and to use us to help reach other people. So number one, accept it. And number two, pray for an opportunity to share this good news with somebody this week. You may not have anybody in mind. That's all right. Pray for it. Say, God, I want to share how good this truth is. By the way, we have GLOW. It's, it's called, What's Jesus Doing Now? It's about the sanctuary. It's an introduction to the sanctuary. You could give that out this week. Are you thankful for the gift? I'm so thankful. So we're going to sing a song. And by we, I mean my helpers this morning. And I think we're just going to go up here, actually. So come on forward. If you didn't bring your paper, uh, Nina will hand one. And I'm going to teach you, along with my friends, this song. You can be down there. That's fine. I'm going to be up here because I'm going to plug in. on the screen here. We're going to sing it together and we'll teach you this song. We have a high priest up in heaven. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He's our defender in the judgment. In the temple
Let's bow our heads. Loving Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the sanctuary, for what it teaches us about how everything for our salvation has been done. Our part is to accept, not to resist, to say, yes, Jesus, thank you for what you've done, for leading me, drawing me, dying for me, cleansing me, interceding for me, and one day soon taking me to that perfect place someday. This is our prayer. This is our desire. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for those that helped. God bless you. Have a happy and a joyful Sabbath in Jesus' full salvation.